you want to open up your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 28, we'll be looking there this evening to God's Word. It's a joyous occasion that brings us all here this morning, not only the worship that we have, but also we get to celebrate a baptism this evening, and it's a great joy for a church to not only be a part of this, to welcome someone into covenant membership, but also to witness this ordinance, and so it's just, it's great to be with you all this evening. It's a joy to be with you on this great occasion, but I think in one sense, as we come here, We can be tempted to think that this is a very ordinary thing that we are going to witness this evening. A very ordinary thing. Not very spectacular. There's no fog machine. I know Shelby requested that, but we declined. There's no fog machine. There's nothing like that. It's just water, okay? It can feel to us like a very ordinary thing. But my hope this evening is that as we look to God's Word and as we look to Scripture, that we'll see that what is going on this evening, not only in our worship, but in this ordinance of baptism, is a cosmic thing, is a cosmic reality, a glorious thing that our Lord has not only instituted, but a fulfillment of His promise that He would keep. I think if any of us have been raised in a church or um, have grown up in a church, we're probably very familiar with the passage that we're going to look at this evening. It's often referred to as the Great Commission. Many of us have heard this passage. Many of us are familiar with this passage. It's where the resurrected Lord, Jesus Christ, speaking to his his disciples, he tells them to go preach the gospel, to baptize um, disciples, and to teach them all that he has commanded. And this passage is often used at church planting conferences, missionary endeavors, right? It's used as this this kind of text, this um, passage in Scripture to get people to go do things, right? To get them to go into all the nations and to plant churches, have missionary summits and endeavors. It's often sort of sometimes seen as a personal mission statement. If you've ever seen on somebody's website, it'll usually have this verse, and it's some sort of personal mission statement, or even a personal evangelistic endeavor, like an individualistic event that someone is supposed to partake in. But my hope is this evening that as we come to God's Word, is that we see that this great commission is not first and foremost about what we do. It's not first and foremost about what you and I do, that it is actually about what Christ is doing. It's not first and foremost about our duties, our responsibilities, our task, but it is actually about what the resurrected and ascended Lord is doing from heaven, fulfilling the great commission from his heavenly throne, this covenantal commission, but the way that he is doing it is in and through his church, the new covenant community. By preaching the gospel to all people and baptizing in the name of the triune God, this is how Christ is fulfilling this commission. And that what we will see tonight in baptism and a member being welcomed into a local church while seeming very ordinary 
and maybe mundane is actually a work of the triune God. His ordained means of gathering, protecting, and preserving His people, the preaching of Christ crucified, the work of the Spirit in salvation, baptism as a sign and seal of God's covenant of grace, and Christ saving His people that are being built up into a holy temple, the church of the living God, the golden lampstand that is supplied with the oil of the Spirit. And this is all because of what Christ has done in his life and his death and his resurrection. And so my hope is that we see that all of Scripture, both Old and New Testament, has been pointing forward to this reality, (laughs) to this instance, and ultimately finds its fulfillment in Christ and in his church, the covenant people of God that have been redeemed by him. So I'm going to read our passage this evening. I'll pray for us, and then we will look to God's word. I'll begin in Matthew 28, verse 16. This is the word of the Lord. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Let's pray this evening. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this passage, Lord, that reminds us not first and foremost of what is required of us, but what Christ has done for us. We pray this morning that as we come to your word, we would ultimately come to rest on it, not as the words of men, but as what it truly is, the very word of God. By your spirit, Lord, would you strengthen us? Would you open the eyes of our hearts that we might see clearly the work of Christ in redemption, in saving his people? And would we glorify you as we come together to worship this evening? We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. We're going to look at three different things this evening. We're going to break it up into three different parts. First, in verses 16 through 17, we're going to look at the mountain of assembly. The mountain of assembly. Then we're going to look at, in verse 18, the commission of Christ. The commission of Christ. And then finally and thirdly, we'll look at the commission of Christ's church. The commission of Christ's church. That we see in our passage this evening, the final words spoken by our Lord in the Gospel of Matthew. The final words spoken by our Lord in the Gospel of Matthew. And we see here the disciples of our Lord gathered together on a mountain worshiping the resurrected Christ. The disciples of Christ on a mountain worshiping the resurrected Christ. Now, if, we've, if you've read through Matthew's Gospel recently or you're familiar with the Gospel, Matthew has labored to make these points throughout his gospel. He's labored to show how Jesus is not just a man, but the Son of God incarnate. The one that was promised in the Old Testament, the Christ who would come and save his people from his sins. 
from their sins. He is the true last Adam, the true Israel that would come and do everything that they failed to do, perfectly obeying God's holy law, and as Matthew 4 shows, resisting the temptation of the devil in the wilderness, passing the probation, and fulfilling all righteousness. But not only would he obey perfectly, he would also suffer perfectly. In his crucifixion and substitutionary death on the cross, he would take the sin of his people upon himself as the true Passover lamb and make atonement for the sin of his people so that they might be saved. And as we see in Matthew 28, upon his resurrection from the grave, his life, his perfect life is vindicated. His conquering of Satan, sin, and death itself is made clear, and he is identified as the glorified Son of Man from Daniel chapter 7. But as we see in our passage, we see a very interesting picture, and we see some interesting things starting to come together. We see, as I stated before, we see God's people on God's mountain worshiping Him. We see God's people on God's mountain worshiping him, receiving a commission, right? We, in Matthew 28, we see the disciples of Christ assembled together on a mountain, worshiping God and given a commission, okay? And you might say to yourself, Kindle, I don't, that doesn't mean anything to me, okay? What, why, why is that significant? Why is that important? Well, if we do something, I call it sanctified squinting, okay? If you've ever looked at a painting, you know, and sometimes we can miss the forest for the trees. We can pick up on all the details and miss the bigger picture that's in view. And so when we squint our eyes and we look at the rest of Scripture, we see that this picture of God's people on God's mountain worshiping Him is not new. (laughs) In fact, it's repeated several times throughout Holy Scripture. What do I mean? If you go to the book of Genesis... Genesis chapter 1, 2, and 3. In the Garden of Eden, what do we see? We see Adam and Eve, God's people, covenant people, on God's holy mountain, dwelling with Him. And they're also given a commission to fill the earth and subdue it. You could go to Exodus in Mount Sinai. What do you see? You see God's old covenant people, Israel, gathered on God's holy mountain, Mount Sinai, And you see them dwelling with God. And they also are given a commission to build the tabernacle. You could go to later in God's revelation in the Old Testament. You could go to David and Solomon, the building of the temple in Mount Zion, where you have God's covenant people on the temple mountain, worshiping and dwelling with God. Why is this important? Because... At the inauguration and pronouncement of the new covenant that we read in our passage in Matthew 28, we see the same picture. We see the same motif. Not only showing us the full divinity of Christ, right? Because you are not allowed to worship anyone who is not God. So we see here the full divinity of Christ, but we also see the covenantal nature of this great commission the covenantal nature of this great commission. 
that just as Adam and Eve were given a commission to fill the earth with the image and glory of God, what we often call the cultural mandate, as part of their covenant of works, right? They were called to fill the earth with image-bearing sons of God and subdue the earth. So here in Matthew 28, we see God's people on God's mountain given a commission to go into all the earth to spread the glory of God across the earth in pronouncement of this new covenant. But as most of you know, we get to Genesis chapter 3 and we see Adam and Eve failed this commission. They failed this covenant of works and thrust all of humanity into sin, into death, and into darkness. And even though in Genesis 3.15 they're given the promise of the seed of the woman that will crush the serpent's head, they were still cast out and exiled from the holy mountain of God's presence. So the question that the rest of the Bible is trying to answer is how are God's people going to get into his holy presence? How are God's people going to ascend God's holy hill? How is this going to happen? In fact, you could go to Exodus 24, and again, you see the people of Israel... God's people on God's mountain, also ratifying a covenant of works on Mount Sinai, but they also fail. They are exiled from the promised land, and their mountain temple is destroyed. And so time after time in Scripture, we see it looks like someone's going to succeed. It looks like someone's going to bring them to this holy presence of God, and yet the people fail. The people fail, and again, the people fail. And so the reason I say this is because as we come to this text, we need to feel the weight of this as we come to this passage. Because we see in verse 17 that it says that even though some of the disciples worship Christ, some of them doubted. Some of them doubted. They are overcome with fear. They are maybe uncertain about the future, doubting the promises of God, doubting their ability to fulfill this task. How can we do this? If it's up to us, we are going to fail just like everyone else has failed. But we see in our passage that Jesus does not leave them here in this state of doubt but he comforts him with the words that we find in verse 18. And that leads us to our second point this evening, the commission of Christ. The commission of Christ. That what we see in verse 18 is we see that our Lord does not leave them in the dark. He does not leave them to fend for themselves, but it says he comes to them. (laughs) Isn't that a great comforting truth? this evening, that the Lord comes to them in their doubt, He reassures them, and He gives them the grounds of their confidence to fulfill this mission, the grounds of their confidence in this new covenant commission that's found not in themselves, not in their ability, not in their efforts, but in His finished work and the promise of His continual presence with His people. And we read in verse 18, our Lord says these words, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. This is the confidence his people have in this new covenant commission. That the incarnate Son of God 
is also the glorified and resurrected Son of Man pictured in Daniel chapter 7 that has been given all authority. That as the true Israel and the better and last Adam, Christ has come to do everything that they failed to do. (laughs) He has come to do everything that Adam failed to do. Not only accomplishing salvation for his people in his active and in his passive obedience, but in fulfilling the original covenant mandate and commission. That as we kind of said before in passing, Adam was given a commission. He was given a mandate, right? We can read about this in Genesis chapter 1. He was to rule over all things. He was to defeat the satanic serpent, and he was to reproduce the image, filling the earth with image-bearing sons of God. This was the work that Adam was commissioned to do. But as we said, the first Adam failed. (laughs) He did not succeed He succumbed to temptation. He gave in to sin's pleas. And he disobeyed the covenant Lord of Scripture. And under the threat of the fiery sword judgment, he was exiled from the garden temple mountain. And as we said, in him, in Adam, all humanity fell in him. They are under the curse and judgment, dead in their trespasses and sins, slaves of unrighteousness, and unable to enter God's holy presence. So this can leave us feeling with despair, right? How, again, how are God's people going to be saved? How is he going to accomplish this redemption? But as we've seen in the Gospel of Matthew, that the good news of the Gospel is that Christ has come as the true and better last Adam to do everything that Adam failed to do. And in his perfect obedience and his death on the cross, he has crushed the serpent's head and poured out his spirit. That as we read here, Christ is now given all authority and all rule over all things, things on heaven and things on earth. And that he alone is able to reproduce the image. He alone is able to fill the earth with image-bearing sons of God. But as we see in this commission that's given, it's not by means of cultural domination or even physical procreation, but by means of gospel proclamation. This is how this commission is going to be fulfilled. Christ ruling and reigning over his covenant people and issuing a new redemptive mandate, the gospel going to all the nations. I thought this was a helpful quote. It's a little bit long, okay? I don't like to quote long things, but I think this is helpful by way of summary. This is from Michael Beck. He, re- he says these words about this passage in Matthew 28. Having exercised his dominion over both Satan and death, the Son of Man could declare his supreme rule and authority. Christ's death and resurrection allows the promised blessing of Abraham to be taken to all nations. As one greater than Adam, Christ now stands upon the mountain and issues his new mandate. Recalling the imagery of Genesis 1 and 2, the last Adam commissions his bride helper, the church, to fill the coming new creation with a new humanity. But unlike physical procreation, which merely generates the image of the man of dust, 
this multiplication would occur through a regeneration that could only result from the Spirit's work through the preaching of the gospel, right? This is what we see in Matthew 28, reproducing not images of the man of dust, but images of the man of heaven. Or we could summarize it like this. Christ's commission has replaced Adam's mandate. Christ's commission has replaced Adam's mandate. What Adam failed to do, Christ is now doing. And it's only after we see this that we can rightly understand the church's covenantal commission. And that brings us to our third and final point this evening, the commission of Christ's church. That once we do all that work of seeing what is going on behind this passage, the imagery that's being invoked, the language that's being used, we see that this commission is not some individualistic endeavor. It is not some thing that's accomplished by human effort or exertion or by pro, like pragmatic methods or novel gimmicks, but that it is actually the work of the resurrected and ascended Christ who from heaven is fulfilling this covenantal commission in and through his church and the ordinary means of grace, the preaching of the word, baptism, and the Lord's Supper, that this is the means that God has ordained to save and change his people, that because Christ has fulfilled the covenant of works given to him by the Father in the covenant of redemption, conquering all of our spiritual enemies, taking our curse upon himself, going under the fiery sword judgment, the, fire, the Father has now bestowed on him his merited reward. That's what we read in Daniel chapter 7, right? All people and all nations should serve him. He is given dominion glory, and a kingdom. A kingdom made up not, not up of buildings, but of people that they might be redeemed from all nations. That we see in our passage, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to the Son. A fulfillment of Psalm chapter 2 that God has truly set His King, the Lord Jesus Christ, on Zion's holy mountain. This is the confidence God's people have in this commission. That it is Christ alone who builds His church. He alone is the covenant mediator, the builder of God's temple. And the way He does this is by effectually calling those who were once under God's wrath the weight and condemnation of their sin, taking their heart of stone and giving them a heart of flesh, giving them true glory, eschatological life that Adam failed to give, saving his people from their sins, administering the new covenant of grace, and bringing many sons to glory. This is what Christ is doing from heaven. But the question that we need to ask this morning as we look at our passage is how is God going to do this? How is God going to co complete this mission? How is He going to fulfill this mandate? What is the means that God is going to use? Is He going to zap people as they're walking down the street, right? Is He going to use these other means? Is He going to say, you just need to do more good works than bad, and then you'll be saved? Is this what we see in our passage? In our passage, we see that 
This is not what God does. He does not zap people. He does not tell them to do more good works than bad. But we see that the way the Lord fulfills this commission is through the proclamation of Christ and Him crucified. The preaching of the resurrected and ascended Lord, making disciples of all people, all nations, and all tongues by going and teaching all that Christ has commanded. Entering the people of God through baptism in the triune name, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Being welcomed into membership in the local church. The place where God's people are gathered and protected. And fellowshipping through the ordinance of the Lord's Supper. The church's gospel mandate to shed the light of Christ around the world. Or we could say it like this. The church of Christ preaching the gospel of Christ empowered by the Spirit of Christ to the glory of Christ. And when we go to the book of Acts, when we go to the the next book after the Gospels, this is the very thing that we see. Christ from heaven, pouring out the oil of His Spirit on His church, supplying them with constant and never-ceasing life and strength that they might fulfill this menorah lampstand mission pictured in Zechariah chapter 4. The temple built, the lampstand lit, the people of God saved. The redemptive fulfillment of the cultural mandate. And we see lastly in our passage that our Lord, even though He will ascend into heaven, He will leave His disciples bodily and physically, but we see that He is not absent from them for a moment but he promises them in verse 20 his never ceasing presence with his people by his spirit. This is the confidence that God's people have. And so we, when we contemplate this passage and think about how to apply it, we see a great comfort here for God's people and really for his church. That as we come to this great commission, we see that it is ultimately Christ who fulfills this great covenantal commission from heaven, saving and changing his people in and through his church. And I think sadly, this passage is often presented first and foremost as something that we do, something that you and I do as an individualistic task and individualistic responsibility. We could even call it kind of another covenant of works where we tell people, if you do these things, then you'll have success. If you invite this many people, if you do this, if you do that, then you will succeed. But we see in this passage that it is precisely the opposite. Christ has done it all. He is the one that is fulfilling this covenantal commission. He is the one that is building His church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And that this commission is not a covenant of works that's dependent on our efforts and our works, but is a covenant of grace that the Lord Jesus Christ is accomplishing through His people. And so, we can also say that the same is true of baptism. That as we come this evening to the sacrament of baptism and entrance into the local church, we see that this is no ordinary thing. This is no mundane event, but a cosmic fulfillment of what our Lord said in Matthew chapter 28. Christ from heaven, fulfilling His commission, present with His people, the church. 
that by calling Shelby to himself, right? By calling her to himself, saving her by the proclamation of the gospel, causing her to repent of her sin and turn to Christ, working faith in her and giving her a new heart. That we see in Scripture that baptism is no empty sign or dead symbol, but is God's covenant word to his people. It's God's covenant word to his people. A vivid picture of the promises of the new covenant. A visible sign of our salvation from the waters of judgment and our new creation and union with Christ. Buried with him in his death and resurrected with him to newness of life. United to Christ and all his saving benefits. A means of grace showing a picture of salvation, our forgiveness of sins, cleansing by His blood, and the promise of resurrection on the last day for all those that are found in Christ. And so when we see baptism like that, as a cosmic fulfillment of what our Lord said, we see that it's not an empty symbol, but it's something that's meant to bring faith and assurance to God's people. It's meant to strengthen them, not by the act itself, but by the faith that accompanies the act. Not by simply going under the water, but by the faith that is strengthened by it. That just as we could say, it is not the drinking of wine or the eating of bread at the Lord's Supper that nourishes the soul, but faith in Christ, in the same way, it is not the water itself that cleanses anyone from their sins. It's Christ. (laughs) It's what He has done that forgives our sin. Because Christ, in what he'll call his baptism on the cross, underwent the judgment that you and I deserved. Going under the waters of death so that you and I might be saved. This is what is pictured in baptism. And that because of the work of Christ as the last Adam, God's people can now enter His holy presence. The heavenly mountain temple, we could say Mount Zion, restored. That what was lost by Adam in the Garden of Eden and typified by Israel on Mount Sinai is fulfilled in the person and work of Christ. He alone has ascended God's holy mountain. And because of his work, he has secured entrance for God's people into God's holy dwelling place. And that the church of God, which in Greek is the ekklesia, the assembly, the gathering, okay? The church is called the gathering of God's people. And that as God's people gather each Sunday on the Lord's day, worshiping the triune God, we see this amazing picture start to come into focus. God's people on God's mountain worshiping Him. Because what does Hebrews chapter 12 say? It says that when God's people come together to worship Him, the assembly of God's people, Hebrews chapter 12 tells us that we are entering the heavenly Mount Zion that the praises of God's people are accepted in the heavenly Jerusalem. And so we have God's people on God's mountain worshiping Him. 
that God's people now stand upon the spiritual Mount Zion and unlike those old covenants, are not consumed by entering this holy presence. This is what we will see every week as we come together with God's people. We see God's people gathered on God's mountain, worshiping Him. And this is not only the reality that we have now in this kind of already not yet time, but we see in the revelation of John, in John chapter 21, we see at the end of all things, this picture will come to consummation, fulfillment. And we read in Revelation chapter 21, John says this, And then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls of the last seven plagues and spoke to me, saying, Come, and I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the Spirit to a high and great mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its light is the Lamb." And by its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. And they will bring into it the glory and honor of the nations. That Christ will accomplish this. He will bring people from every tribe, every tongue, every nation, saving them by the proclamation of Christ crucified and preserving them unto glory. So, We can thank God for His grace and have confidence that He is able to fulfill this promise. Let's pray this evening. Heavenly Father, we come before You now and we thank You for Your mercy and Your grace. We thank You for what Christ has done for us. That what Adam failed to do, Christ has now done. That He is able to fill the earth with image-bearing sons and daughters of God by the gospel being proclaimed, by sinners coming to repentance, by the supernatural work of the Spirit, giving them a new heart and new affections. And as we come now to the ordinance of baptism, we pray that you would um, be with us, that you would um, be with Shelby, and that you would strengthen all of us this evening as we remember what you have done for us in Christ. We pray all these things in his name. Amen.